Wisecast, the podcast for women in STEM and education. I am Dr. Richa Chandra. And I am Dr. Amber Miller. In today's episode, we are learning about compassion and its importance in the professional setting. But before we alleviate all of the suffering, Richa, how did you dress for success today? So today is a cold front day coming in, in Texas. Um, so I had to alleviate my own personal suffering because I hate being cold. So dressing in layers was important. So um, underneath, it's just a black tank and black shirt. And I've got a black hoodie that I bought. Um, I think it was on one of the beaches in Los Angeles. So where our guest comes from, from California. So it was a windy day there. Ended up buying this hoodie. It's one of my favorite black hoodies. So I'm all in layers and ready to be compassionate. How are you dressed for success today? I had a very similar vibe as you today with the cold chili front. Not too cold. Like, I feel like we shouldn't say cold in January because other places, I think they're actually getting like snowstorms and stuff. But I have like a light long sleeve, um, like sweater dress almost. It's not really dress, but it's very much like it could be. I have leggings underneath it because like I can't, it's too short for me to not have leggings underneath it. And then this extra cozy like sweater because it's always cold at work. And so I need extra um, warmth. But it was definitely that comfort vibe, you know, with thinking about compassion and that, I don't know, I always think like warm blanket, you know, snuggle in. And so I, my attire is definitely in vibe with that um, feeling as well. And I think that's such an important sentiment, Amber, that you brought up that our guest also talks about, you know, compassion at work and for others also begins with self-compassion, which we are both doing a great job of showing today. We're really happy to have April Wenzel with us here today. She is an international keynote speaker and the founder of Compassionate Coding, a conscious business that provides communication skills training to technology professionals. Prior to starting Compassionate Coding, she spent a decade as a software engineer and technical leader at various startups in Silicon Valley, building products in such fields as healthcare, gaming, education, and user research. Away from the keyboard, she enjoys gleaning fruit, running ultra marathons, and experimenting with vegan recipes. Thanks for joining us on WiseCast, April. Hello, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so to jump right in, um, your backstory of bringing compassion to work centers around your experience as a software engineer, um, and you created the term compassionate coding, which you have described as two words that don't necessarily go together, but they should. So how did you come up with this phrase and to bring these words together? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, my background is in software engineering. So that's the coding side of things. That's where that comes from. Uh, and as far as the compassion side, so I had been working in tech at various different companies uh, for about a decade. And I got to this personal low point of disillusionment, maybe burnout a little bit of both, where you know I'd done everything right, studied computer science, did well, got the jobs, you know, was making good money, all these things. I fit in in the boys club, all these things, you know, I wore the hoodie and, and fit right in in Silicon Valley. And yet I found myself really sad and really feeling empty. And so after a bad experience with that, I got on the personal development uh, path and started reading a bunch of materials and, and self-help books and all that kind of stuff. And through that, I learned about compassion and mindfulness. And I was like, oh, this is what I need. Uh, and so that's where compassion kind of entered my life. Uh, it led to me going vegan because that's connected to my compassion, trying to reduce suffering for animals as well. And so 
uh, to get back to your question, in 2016, as part of going vegan, I attended this retreat that was about compassion uh, that was run by this uh, famous uh, vegan influencer called Colleen Patrick Goudreau. I was in the Bay Area and we had this exercise of a uh, brainstorm exercise of how we wanted to, after learning about compassion, how did we want to bring compassion into our lives? And that's when I was brainstorming and I was like, you know, all this compassion stuff I'm learning about, tech could sure use some of it. And so that's where I tied the two together. It was like compassion, coding, all right, I love alliteration. Uh, so it worked on that front too. And uh, thus compassionate coding uh, was born. It's really interesting that you, you know, found it in your personal life with like veganism. I, I'm a vegetarian too, so. Awesome. Know, um, so I, I get that. I, it's been hard for me to give up cheese and eggs, but, um, you know, like, so you've gone all the way and then to tie that into, you know, the tech tech world, you know, also making technology more humane, right? Um, and, you know, so it, it was interesting because I was listening to one of your recordings um, and, you know, just kind of like listening to just the whole concept of bringing that into the professional workforce and, you know, how we could all be just good people, right? Be good to each other. Um, and it it had me wondering, sometimes I think we equate not showing that compassion or, you know, or not even showing our own feelings. Forget, you know, showing compassion towards others, but you also talk about compassion to yourselves as being more professional. In a sense, you know, if you're more stoic, do you come across as more professional? Was that um, something that you found a conflict with? That's a really good question. And I think it ties into just kind of the history of, you know, where our economy came from and where business came from. And, uh, you know, who were the influential people at the beginning? You know, um, they were not a lot of women, <laughs> you know, they weren't the wise women that uh, are at the helm now. But, uh, you know, and so I think part of that was ties into this idea that we have to suppress our emotions and check our emotions at the door. Uh, but which sounds good, maybe in theory, like, let's just separate this out. The problem is that even then, and especially now, even if you don't try to talk about emotions, they're going to come out. You're going to have like an explosion. You're going to write an email you regret. Uh, these things are going to uh, influence you. It's just a matter of whether we're aware of the emotions and we want to do something about them actively or whether we want to kind of ignore them and pretend they're not there and then deal with passive aggressiveness or uh, or active aggressiveness and that kind of thing. Um, and so that's where I saw the trade off there. So I think we're part of this. There's an evolution happening now where we are recognizing that as human beings, alas, we cannot turn off these emotions as much as we might like to. And as far as, you know, you mentioned this being stoic, like actual like stoicism, I see a lot of benefits too as well. So I don't want to discount that. Uh, but as far as those emotions, those are always going to happen. And it's just a matter of how we deal with them. Yeah, I like that. Um, and, and I, you know, disclaimer, I'm, I'm, you know, definitely on your side on a lot of this, but I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here just to kind of think about the other perspective, right? Um, you know, maybe from the business perspective. So I agree with you. We, we both agree with you that people are suffering more, um, you know, pandemic, et cetera. Uh, economically, there's just been and worldwide with polarization, et cetera, right? People are generally suffering more. Suicide rates are up. All these things are true. Um, however, why does compassion need to be tackled in the professional environment? Um, you know, why is it on the, the employers or 
you know, maybe not, um, even if it is on the employers to kind of help out with that, why does it have to be tackled in that professional environment versus encouraging your employees to, oh, go and exercise and we'll, you know, you know, set up this and that, you know, or like you can get a discount at this gym and, you know, encouraging um, employees to get therapy, et cetera, through benefits, um, yeah, outside in, in their own personal time. Yeah, that's a very valid question. So uh, I'll, t- I'll tackle it in a couple of ways, a few ways, maybe. So first, I would say that the way I approach this work, I try to bring the, that compassion and energy to how I approach it, too. So I never want to come in and say, you need to be more compassionate or this company, you should be more compassionate or you need to implement these practices. So I wouldn't even argue that it does need to be part of the professional environment. I see my work as sort of conveying the benefits that may be there and and hoping to invite people uh, into the journey, but not trying to impose it. So that's at first level there. But to your other point, uh, there is uh, an importance to giving time off and, and to all that sort of things. And I would say that a lot of that can be motivated by compassion, like even if it's a rational compassion, like I want my employees to suffer less so that they can become more productive. Uh, so it does tie into the bottom line in that way. And so there is a business case to be made for it. But I'll touch on that too. Like it's a valid concern that the workplaces really should not be providing for all of our needs. Like that's just not a healthy sort of setup. Uh, I read this book that um, was also kind of challenging some of the things that I work on, which is called A Work, Pray, Code uh, by Carolyn Chen. And it was interesting because she was challenging this idea that the employer uh, has become, especially in tech, this sort of like spiritual guide, which can be kind of creepy, to be honest, because they can use like that urge that people have for meaning and whatever and sort of take advantage of it kind of like a cult leader would. And I, which I think she raises some very good points there. And so the line that I try to walk is, again, um, inviting people into it, uh, not imposing it upon people, one. And two, the other thing to consider is that the suffering happens in the workplace as well. And so that's a good place to address it especially the specific suffering that happens there. For example, uh, you know, you could work your employees to the bone and treat them poorly and then say, now go fix yourself in therapy. Here's some benefits to do that. Or if you bring compassion in further up the chain, then it's like, maybe let's not cause so much suffering. And then there's not so much to fix down the line. And so I think you can you can bring it in uh, that way as well. No, I think that's I think that's really interesting too, that you know, just not like we're all suffering and we all have things, but to reduce, you know, what you can contribute to reducing, right? It's gonna have an impact on the person. And as much as we like to say like our work life and our personal life are separate, like it's never it's we're one person experiencing all the things and and we can't really right separate them out. And I guess like one of the things that I continually struggle with because um, we've learned that we all have, and especially probably the three of us, different mindset than other people do, um, that I don't understand. And maybe like you can help fill me in on why we don't all just naturally want to like not make people suffer. And why, like, why don't we, why aren't we all just trying to alleviate the suffering for everybody else? Like, and be those nice people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The, hey, that's a good question. Uh so I can partly answer this because uh, one of my old blog posts was called uh, Confessions of a Recovering Jerk Programmer, wherein I discuss how I actually had to learn a lot of this myself because I had worked so hard to fit in 
in like this hardcore Silicon Valley thing that I had taken on some of those traits. And so speaking as a recovering jerk, I won't even say former because it comes out sometimes. Uh, I think that the issue is that I don't think there's a lot of people out there that are setting out to be mean necessarily. I think it's that we have competing interests uh, in our mind about things you want to focus on. So for example, some of the people on a team uh, in a workplace that may seem really abrasive and really uh, like maybe even angry and um, like not pleasant to be around, trying to use, you know, nice words here. But uh, those people, a lot of times they're motivated because they care so much about the product or they care so much about a specific technology or technique or uh, maybe they, uh, you know, are so detail oriented that they lose sight of how their communication can come across as uh, really hurtful. Uh, and they might use, you know, harsh language or they might, you know, actually insult people because there's this competing interest for you know, what they care about. And so I think when it comes down to it, there are very few people I think that are actually, that actually have bad intentions. I think it comes down to being an imperfect human and trying to balance the de the demands that are put upon us. And, um, you know, talking about suffering, there's, you know, this, this phrase that uh, you may have heard before called like hurt people, hurt people. And it's not to excuse any sort of like bad behavior necessarily, but it, it, the people who are hurting the others the most are usually the ones suffering the most. And when you keep that in mind, it's like, oh, I see why they're acting out like that, because there's some kind of pain. I may never know exactly what the pain is, but there's some kind of pain underneath their behavior. It's like bottom up compassion too, I guess, you know, to recognize why the people above are, are doing the things they are, or, you know, being so, I guess, impersonal in a way, right? Because if you're so tied to your product, your project, et cetera, you've kind of alienated yourself and become more isolated in a sense as well, because that's what your main passion is as opposed to being, you know, involved with with the people that work on it and, you know, thinking of the community aspect of it. Um, you know, and I guess there's probably a balance. You can probably swing too far you know, the other way. And so, you know, that what comes up from that is like, where are those boundaries? Um, you know, where do you find that that balance of where it's, excessive compassion because could it be that people would take advantage of that if you're you come across as like this very soft person um especially if you're the one who's in charge yeah so that's that's also a good question i think uh, especially in the past few years i've seen that anything taken to the extreme uh is definitely can be uh for the worse um so i think one way to address this uh jack cornfield who uh speaks a lot about compassion and that sort of thing has said that compassion is incomplete if it doesn't include yourself. And so I think that's how you balance it out a little bit is that you remember that you have to have compassion for yourself too. And that's how you avoid becoming a doormat, for example, and letting people take advantage uh, or you know being perceived as weak or that sort of thing is that you also look out for yourself as well. That's, a, that's an important part of it. And I think too, there's this idea of fierce compassion versus you know kind of maybe soft, uh, more yin compassion. And with fierce compassion, you may, compassion sometimes looks very strong. You may have to speak very assertively. You may have to, uh, you know, come across, you know, use your voice. And so that's also kind of how you can avoid looking like, you know, somebody weak that's easily taken advantage of is you're, you're standing up for yourself. You're standing up for others. That's also a big part of compassion. Um, but that said, like compassion is important, goes along with boundaries, right? So if you set boundaries, in your personal life, in your work life, wherever, uh, that 
helps you be compassionate within those boundaries. And it's compassion for yourself to maintain those boundaries. Yeah, I love this. I love that concept of fierce compassion and really, you know, just um, that I think speaking the truth, right, and and holding to your values is also a part of compassion that I think, you know, may not always be what we think of when we think about people being compassionate. Um, and I think that really kind of emphasizes and echoes that. And so um, we have a quote from one of your talks, right, um, that, that says, less human interaction leads to less tolerance and understanding of difference as well as more envy and antagonism. And social media actually increases divisions by amplifying echo effects and allowing us to live in cognitive bubbles. And so on our podcast, we, um, I think, continually talk about or constantly talk about or bring up social media. Um, and so do you think that social media is the biggest contributor to suffering, in your opinion, and the lack of compassion? Uh, so first, I want to give credit where credit is due. That's a quote from uh, David Byrne from an article that he wrote for the MIT Media Review called Eliminating the Human, where it's from 2017, but uh, it's an interesting read now because he predicts a lot of the things that came to fruition during the pandemic or you know got worse during the pandemic in terms of people being more online. Uh, it's a really great article. I, I look back at that a lot. Um, and as far as social media, I do think social media contributes to suffering in a lot of ways. I'm not sure it's the number one thing. It's it's hard to pick something that's number one. Uh, and, you know, I, I will say I have to admit that my company, uh, I, I increased my reach a lot using social media. So Twitter was something that I used. I, I would publish blog posts. I would share them on there. I would... Um, I was a frequent tweeter for a while. And so I have to admit that I did use it uh, to spread you know, the word about my business. And so I do see benefits and I connect it with people from all over the world that I wouldn't have gotten to speak with otherwise. Uh, but that said, I do think that uh, social media, I mean, you know, Marshall McLuhan, there's this quote uh, that he has, the medium is the message. And so I think you know, especially when it comes to Twitter, everything's so short, it's really hard to convey nuance. Uh, and it's also so immediate and it's public. And so it brings it, it basically brings out the worst in us. Uh, and like, you know, what goes viral are the most extreme emotions. So for like so many reasons, social media and it's set up to be addictive. Right. There's all these things. So it's it, it definitely does contribute to a lot of suffering. I think it's really hard to express compassion and empathy over that medium. And I think it's really hard when you can't look somebody in the eye even uh, I think that that's not helping anything, especially across political differences, but really across any kind of differences. And so it's just it's not real human interaction. It's 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 just not. And yes, there are benefits to it. It serves a purpose, all of that. But we need like in-person human connection. It's uh, it's really it's really important. So uh, I personally try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, I know a lot of my friends, too, are getting into that of all ages. So in the same day, this was like last week or the week before, a friend of mine who's in her 50s, she texted me to say, like, I'm deleting Facebook. I'm going off dating apps. Like, no more of this. I want in-person stuff. And she's like a woman in her 50s. And then another friend of mine who's, you know, Gen Z kind of guy, um, so a lot younger, he was like, I'm deleting social media. And he even said, the more time I spend online, like the worse I feel. And he's part of that generation that's like really addicted. So I think, you know, no matter which side of this you look at, uh, it's not doing us a lot of good. 
Um, and so some of the responsibility lies with the tech companies, like so my peers, that sort of thing. Like we've we've uh, messed this up for a lot of people. But also, I think, you know, I think it's empowering to think that the individual can still has uh, opportunity here to make a change. And so, like I said, I don't I don't use it um, much. I, I use it like in the ways that serve my business, that sort of thing, in the ways that serve me personally. Uh, but I try to be mindful even with using it. So I think like any tool, if we're mindful with it, it can still serve a purpose. Like we'll be sharing this podcast on social media. Maybe listeners right now discovered it because of they saw a link on social media. Uh, so, you know, you have to meet people where they are. So that's how I uh, reckoned with using um, like or that's how I, I sort of reconciled my values with using social media was I have to meet people where they are. And so sometimes I'll complain about Twitter on Twitter, but that's where maybe people need to hear about like the benefits of getting off Twitter. Right. So uh, that, that's the other balance that I have there. It feels like there there seems to be some backlash happening. You were mentioning your friend who's Gen Z and I, I, I th- I'm picking up on that from, so I'm a college professor. So from the college students, some of them are like, no, I don't do social media. I don't do it. Right. So maybe there will be some kind of turning point where, Maybe we can outsmart the tech companies, even though they have all this data on us and they're way smarter at, you know, capturing our attention and keeping our attention, et cetera. But um, yeah, so that they're, they're not as creepily in everyone's lives, um, you know, beyond just their employees. But yeah, so hopefully that that will happen. But there's going to be something else, I feel like. Um, information is just growing so much. So how do you, you know, get all of that out there? And I, I just can't imagine a world where there will be none of that. So I think that maybe it needs to come with a Surgeon General's warning or something, right? There needs to be education of, you know, the population to, you know, guard themselves against the the dangers that, that are there with social media. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, two uh, things I'll mention are there's the Center for Humane Technology that addresses some of these things that people might want to look into. And there's another organization called All Tech is Human, And I like that one because they sort of aggregate a lot of other organizations. And so it's a good starting point for finding organizations that are addressing some of these issues uh, and trying to create better tech. So. So, April, I think we're we're in agreement that, you know, a culture of compassion is very beneficial. It's very needed. Um, So how do we build it in a way where lifting people up and helping people out is just as important as the, the product and the projects that we're working on? So I think one thing is to shift perspective. So I don't see them as necessarily in conflict or, or even competing, um, because if you lift people up and help people, they will contribute better to the product and they will create, uh, you know, they will do better. They will be more effective workers. And so with that in mind, it's just kind of about how to layer it into existing systems. Uh, so, yeah, so on an individual level, I think speaking kindly to ourselves, like the, the being compassionate to yourself, I think, is the starting point, because, again, the more we're suffering, the more likely it is that we're going to hurt others. And so as much as we can tend to ourselves, that's like the starting point right there. And then I think no matter who, what your role in the organization, you can lead by example. And so you don't have to have a formal title to do that leadership either. Uh, anybody can can take a step and, you know, whether it's just reaching out to a coworker who seems like they're struggling, whether it's, you know, having a little like, you know, cough, quick coffee chat or, you know, the Zoom equivalent uh, with somebody who seems like they're struggling, that's a way to do it. Um, you know, 
seeing like who's uh, who's able to contribute in meetings and maybe like who's getting interrupted, that sort of thing. Like just being more mindful, I think, you know, you, there's always little opportunities to uh, to to be to, to demonstrate compassion. And I think it also boils down to the, I think the best moments, the best opportunities to show compassion come uh, in a difficult time. So when you are feeling angry at somebody or somebody at work has done something that really frustrates you, taking a breath and being like, what's going on in their world? What might be going on in their world that's causing them to be so annoying right now? And even just taking that breath and taking that pause can sometimes help us slow down our, you know, tend to our own emotions enough that we can show up with compassion, even when somebody else um, maybe not is not able to demonstrate it in that moment. So that's kind of on an individual level. Uh, but it's true that, you know, as I mentioned, this ties into the systems at work, like what's rewarded? Do we reward mentorship? Uh, do we reward, you know, helping out with um, projects that are maybe outside of our specific scope, but it's helping out somebody who maybe is struggling with something at home? Like, do we treat people as human beings? And that kind of ties into reward systems and, and you know, performance and all of that in the workplace. Uh, and so that's another side to look at it. Um, but I still like to talk about the individual level because for me, that always feels more empowering than, oh, we just have to fix this whole system. It's like, okay, but what can I do like right now? So that's why I started with that. No, I like that. You know, it doesn't have to be in conflict with what the goals of the, you know, the organization are, um, except for, I guess, like a slight nuance, right? So there's there's this whole term that's come up, um, especially during the pandemic, uh, called compassion fatigue. And it's primarily, you know, for healthcare workers that are more, I guess, people facing in terms of, you know, their work, um, where you just kind of, you can run out, you can, you know, run out of your bandwidth for that much compassion. Um, sometimes I feel it as a professor, you know, it may not be, you know, compassion fatigue to that level as a healthcare worker, but, you know, so it's, and, and it, I think it's hard for us women too, right? Because we're expected to be the more compassionate gender. Um, and yet we also tend to have a lot more on our plates as, as mothers, as, you know, um, you know, all the things that, that we, we have to battle in our day to day. And then when you encounter somebody who, you know, is expecting that compassion out of you, and you realize as they're speaking or as they're sharing that what their troubles are, are not even maybe as great as what you might be experiencing. So there seems to be a conflict there in that, you know, type of work. Yeah, one thing that, uh, so I'm familiar with compassion fatigue. Uh, I've definitely uh, ventured into that territory, especially during the pandemic. Like I was not tending to myself as much as I should have and definitely felt that a lot. Um, but I, I read something that was saying that e even that term compassion fatigue might be better said like empathy fatigue sort of because it's there's a, there's another nuance here, which is that there's the emotional side of empathy or compassion where you're actually trying to, especially with empathy, feel what someone else is feeling. And so that can be particularly exhausting emotionally because you're taking on their emotions and you're taking on their suffering and it can be really draining. But uh, they've done like these brain scans. And again, this is emerging research. But when people are instead uh, trying to focus on compassion versus empathy, so not exactly feeling what the person's feeling, but just noticing their suffering and maybe rationally taking steps to help in whatever way, that it, it triggers different parts of the brain, different parts light up on the scans. And again, this is not my area of expertise. So uh, 
uh, please forgive the hand waving here. But the idea was that compassion can light up sort of more positive feelings, even though we're talking about suffering, because it's that like connection versus empathy, which sometimes can like you're actually taking on these negative emotions. That's another thing, too, is that sometimes compassion uh, you're sort of surrounding it almost with this rational container, I sort of think of it like, and that can sometimes help prevent you from losing so much energy to it. But again, compassion always has to include yourself. And so if you really do feel like you're drowning with everything going on, right, if anyone does, maybe the most compassionate thing to do is to like separate yourself from that situation because you can't always be available uh, to everyone all the time. Uh, and that's just, you know, part of being human. So it's a good, good point to, to bring up. So thanks for that. I love that. <laughs> like, that's such a big mindset shift, right? Um, to train yourself to recognize that it's not necessary for you to feel what the person in front of you is feeling, but put it in that rational container, like you said. Yeah. I mean, it's like processing and trying to process and, and, and take it all in um, because there's a lot of good information and things because I do. I'm with you. It, it's not that you want to feel how they feel, but I think just listening and putting yourself there in a place where you can i mean remembering and reminding ourselves that everyone is a person that is dealing with stuff um is a hard like for whatever reason like we know it because we know we are always dealing with stuff it's never like oh there's nothing going on in my life today. like that's like never a thing right and so but it's just something that is so challenging for us to take a step back and to take ourselves out of the equation to an extent and realize right that everybody is going through stuff and 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 using that as a framework to, you know, maybe give people a pass when they're not super polite or they don't say good morning back to you when you say, you know, like you just don't know what, what's going on. Um, but that, yeah, it doesn't mean that you have to, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way either, but like get drug into the mess of it, right? So that you are just like, oh, everything is terrible. And now I feel like this. And then, you know, you're just as not productive as the, the person you're trying to, to help with. So with all of this and all this good nuggets, um, how can we make compassion actionable to combat burnout? Like, is this something that we can use then to help with some of our own fatigue or other people's? Yeah, that's a good question. And definitely the pandemic has brought on a lot of feelings of burnout. So I think the important thing with burnout is to remember that or to think about the fact that there's different types of burnout. And so sometimes it is the sort of traditional thing you might think of, of you really do just like work yourself too much. You're just, there's too much going on and you're just like literally just tired. That, that, that is, that can contribute to burnout. But a lot of times it's something else. It's like feeling powerless in a situation or maybe like feeling like lack of meaning in your work uh, or a lack of challenge even can cause burnout. And so I think part of addressing burnout is uh, to be curious about it and be curious about your own specific type of burnout. And that will help you decide how to address it. Because uh, sometimes it's actually easier to address the first type where it's just, you know, you're tired because then you can just reduce the workload. I mean, not that that's always easy, but at least you kind of know how to attack it or how to go about it. The other ones can be a bit more challenging because you might have to kind of change your work. Like you might have to work on different projects or that sort of thing. And so I think with burnout, there's no like one size fits all thing. I would say that the overarching thing is to treat it like an experiment, which hopefully doesn't sound too exhausting if you're already burnt out, but like try little things, try little things and see if they help. And if they don't try something else. And so, you know, uh, there's this uh, book, The Power of Full Engagement by uh, Jim Lehrer and Tony Schwartz, and they talk about managing energy, not time. And so this was like a 
key mindset shift for me. And I was like, it's true. Like, that's what's really important. And so sometimes if we're feeling drained in one area, like maybe professionally, then actually using energy in another area might help. So like, even if we're feeling tired because of work, going on a run or something may actually perk us up. So even though we may feel like, oh, I don't have any energy, we do have that physical energy and like that can help pull us out of it. Um, and so there's different you know, examples of that where sometimes uh, like trying to replenish your energy using energy from a different store that you still have, like maybe your kids give you energy, you know, when you play with them and that can help with some of the other things that you might not uh, feel. And like other things for some people, it's being creative brings them energy, right? There's that kind of thing. Um, just being around others can help. Uh, so I know a lot of times people say for burnout, especially now it's kind of become a little bit more trendy to say, you know, like heal in community and be in community and that sort of thing, which I think is very valuable. Uh, I'm sort of a lone wolf. So for me, that, that's never really been the, the main appeal, but I have to mention it because I know it really does help a lot of people. I just always feel sometimes when I'm burnout, like I don't have the energy to try to find a community or make new friends. I'm just like, no, no, like I can't even think about that. So, but that said, for those who it works for, that can help. Uh, for me, it's nature uh, always replenishes me. Like that's one thing I lean on. Uh, and like reading is another one because I get in that flow state kind of thing. And so, again, I think it's about staying curious about your exact nature, the exact nature of your burnout, running little experiments, keeping what works, throwing out what doesn't. Because to be honest, there can be stacks and stacks of research papers saying that something's going to work, but that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And so rather than trying to you know, do my own like research on like, what is the cure to burnout? It's like, let me try this. Let me try that. Let's see what works for April. I like that. We've tackled two major topics here, both compassion and burnout. So we have a lot of actionable items <laughs> from this conversation. So April, we'd like to do something a little bit fun at the end of our um, recordings um, that we don't prepare our guests for. We're going to do a series of rapid fire questions. Um, okay. Amber's going to turn on a timer for one minute and I'll just ask you these questions and whatever comes to your mind, you'll just answer. Sounds good. All right. First one, what's for dinner tonight? Uh, uh, a vegan munch wrap from this place called Modern Times that I really like uh, locally. But what's your favorite social media app? <sighs> In real life. Real life? I don't even know that. No, no, it's not one. I, I mean, like, oh, not like okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a non answer, like interacting in real life. That's my answer. Okay. What advice would you give your younger self? Uh, as hard as it is to uh, care a little bit less about what people think. What is not a big deal to most, but is torture for you? Mm. Oh, that's a really tough one. I don't know. Like, I'm a pretty easygoing person. Not a lot of stuff really bothers me. Um, I guess like, uh, I don't know, pass. <laughs> All right. Are we out of time or no? Okay. What, uh, what would your superpower be? Uh, I would love to fly. I'm so jealous of birds when I watch them. It just the view up there must be amazing. I'd love to fly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for answering all these questions and for having this amazing conversation. I think that we're always learning from our guests. Um, so I, I love that, that we're kind of on this growth journey with um, meeting new people. So we have, oh, go ahead. Yes. No, we have one last question for you, which is how can our listeners connect with you and where can they find you? So my website's compassionatecoding.com uh, and I do use Twitter and I am on LinkedIn. So on Twitter, I'm April at April Wenzel, on LinkedIn, uh, April Wenzel. Uh, 
And yeah, hopefully those will just be a jumping off point to meet in person sometime because that's my, my preferred way of connecting with people. I love that. That's a good non-answer, right? <laughs> but I actually thought you meant, because there's supposedly some new social media app where it's supposed to be more real and people there, just like... Yeah, there's the, and they have names like that. They, that's like, yeah. like real life could totally be one. Maybe I should start one called Real Life, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people. Well, thank you again, April. We really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you as always for listening. Support WiseCast with a monthly donation to ensure great quality future episodes. Or you can also donate to our cause using PayPal. Both are linked in the episode notes. Don't forget to share your love of WiseCast with all of your friends. I am Dr. Richard Chandra. And I am Dr. Amber Miller. This Women's History Month, Women in Bio is celebrating the community of members who make WIB a wonderful place to be. From coast to coast and the classroom to the boardroom, we are so proud to be a part of the impact the WIB community has in the life sciences and beyond. With webinars, events, networking opportunities, and unique initiatives like Young Women in Bio, WIB has something for everyone at all career stages. To celebrate and grow our diverse community this month, you can use promo code CELEBRATE15 to get $15 off an annual membership. Visit www.womeninbio.org to learn more about the organization and join.